Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast, where I drop... Damn it. <laughs> a little originality there. Nothing like a little ad-lib and bring it on. Yeah, there you go. Oh, Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed is weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 328 was recorded live May 25th, 2017. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where it is wavy and I am dropping shit. Joining me this week we have Kevin Ailes. How are you doing today, Kevin? Darren, I am most excellent here. A little bit groggy, a little bit too much time underwater here, but I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing great, but is it possible to have too much time underwater? Mm, I'm trying. I'm, I'm doing my best, okay? I'm getting there. <laughs> You're carrying the torch for all of us, so you can get get that in there. Torches don't burn well, underwater, from what I understand, though. Well, it depends upon the torch, and depends upon the batteries you got, too. You know, yeah. I mean, there's some pretty good torches down there. So, yep. I've got I've got some goals. I'm trying to get. Uh, I've got a goal of getting in 50 hours on the rebreather uh, by mid July. I'm not quite on track for that, so I'm I'm doing I'm getting what I can. 50 hours doesn't seem too unreasonable. That just uh... You know, if you start Thursday uh, Thursday about noon and just keep diving till Sunday afternoon, you should have that in. Yeah, it's a little bit hard to change the scrubber when you're down there, though. But uh, I'll, yeah, I'll figure it out. So I, I hear the sorb doesn't doesn't like uh, moisture that much. It, you know, it depends on just how caustic you want to get. If you know, I guess you probably build up a little bit Thomas that caustic cocktail, and you might be okay. <laughs> but you know, uh, kind of a tough learning curve, I'm sure. I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have Dave Toneman, we have Rick Hunter, uh, and we have Guest Three, who I think is a regular in there. I guest Three the is, yeah, Guest Three is uh, Nelson tonight. Oh, good. You know, we often have that's Nelson in there, and he just decided to be incognito tonight, which I just kind of blew out of the water. But <laughs> yeah, that's what they, we do. That's there it. goes his alter ego. Mm-hmm. So let's go ahead and jump right on into the news, and I believe you have the first article for us. Yeah, we're kind of doing a little bit of a recap on the uh, Costa Concordia. You know, there's been a number of different uh, updates this over, since this happened in uh, 2012. The former captain of the Costa Concordia cruise liner has been sentenced to 16 years in prison by Italy's highest court for his role in the 2012 shipwreck, which killed 32 people off the Tuscan holiday island of Diglio. Francisco, Sch- I'm, I'm just butchering this here, but I don't know. Francesco Chitino was originally found guilty in 2015 of manslaughter, causing a shipwreck and abandoning his passengers. The ruling marked the end of the appeals process, with the court upholding the initial verdict. Oh, come on. Free during the prolonged legal battles, Chitino, 56, reported to a Rome prison to start a sentence as soon as he was told of the verdict. His lawyer, Severio, said, he said, As always, Italy needs to find a scapegoat, he said. Mr. Sinise added that his client had waited for word of his fate alone outside the prison gates rather than stay at home with his family in southern Italy. Finally, uh, Chitino begins to pay for his wrongdoing. 
Michaelina Serrano, one of the lawyers representing passengers, set up the ruling. Pictures of the wreck here. It's pretty. Well, these pictures, I'm sure they're right after the wreck. The Cross Concordia was carrying more than 4,200 passengers and crew when it hit rocks off Italian island Giglio on a January night. The collision tore a hole in the ship's side and it eventually keeled over. Uh, Chitino was lambasted by the Italian media and branded Captain Coward for leaving the stricken ship while a chaotic nighttime rescue operation was in full flow. Critics accused him of bringing shame to the whole country through his actions. At his first trial, prosecutors had asked for a 26-year term. Okay. Now, lots, lots of more pictures here showing on the wreck side. Chitino's legal team considering an appeal. Chitino admitted some responsibility but, but denied blame for the deaths that occurred during the evacuation, said he was not solely to blame. His lawyer said that he might appeal to the European Court of Human Rights. I think there have been serious abuses here, Mr. Snee said. I never give up. He's a lawyer. Come on. Uh, <laughs> oh, that, that's but I can put that in there. Investigators severely criticized Chitino's handling of disaster, accusing him of sailing too close to short from a spectacular salute to Giglio for the benefit of the ship's head waiter who came from the island. Come on, I thought it was a girlfriend. Wasn't he trying to impress some chick out of this? I'm, I'm, I'm sure if you got the real hidden story, there was, there was something about that. From, from what I remember at the time, and it, it's been quite a while, we've been covering this, it seems like, for years, but uh, he was doing one of those uh, salutes where the the vessel did kind of a ninety degree turn and was kind of strafing the shoreline. When uh, uh, he, I don't think it was where he thought it was, and ran into something. And then uh, part of that article talks about uh, him claiming he slipped and fell onto the roof of the lifeboat. And then the coast guard embarrassed him and and told him that uh, he needs to get back and uh, manage manage his ship as captain. Yeah, you know this is like. I mean, it's nice to have the update on his sentencing there, but um, where's all the all the juicy details we've had in the previous articles here? You know, talking about you know impressing the girlfriend and talking about him chickening out. He just mentioned kicking coward, but I mean, this this is a little bit uh, less critical than what we've had in the past. But I'll resume here. Uh, Chitino was also accused of delaying the evacuation, abandoning his ship prematurely. He said that he had been thrown off the vessel at the tilted and landed on the roof of a lifeboat. Uh, humiliatingly, a furious Coast Guard official had ordered him to return to his ship and take charge of the rescue. More pictures of him. Looks like he's actually like he's in custody right there. He was left alone on the stand to answer for the disaster after the ship's owner, the Costa Cruz's subsidiary of Carnival Corp, paid a fine of one million euros, 1.3 million at the time, and prosecutors accepted plea bargains from five other officials. The massive rusting hulk of the Cost Concordia was left abandoned on its side for two and a half years before it was towed away from the most expensive marine wreck recovery in history. The last body was not recovered until 2014. Chitino's defense team contended that he had prevented an even worse disaster by steering the ship close to the island as it sank. And we have links to a number of other articles talking about going to the scrapyard and underwater videos and footage. But wow. This says, I mean, usually when there's fatalities involved, they kind of get the trial going quickly and uh, sentencing quickly to kind of get some closure for the families. I'm really surprised this has been drug out here for, uh, we got five years going on this now. Yeah, what it looks January like is, that what it's looking like is that this is the final review. You know, the, he's gone through all his appeals, and this is supposed to be the final appeal, even though his mm-hmm. attorneys uh, indicated they're going to look at some other options, which is 
what attorneys are like to do. But uh, That's what appears, they do. Yeah, it, it appears that this uh, may be the, the end of it. And he was out um, on uh, probably over here in the U.S. we would call bail. Uh, mm. But he was actually waiting. He, he waited for the verdict at the gate to the prison instead of waiting at home because uh, he he's officially starts serving his sentence as soon as the, the verdict was read. So, uh, mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm, Oh, it sounds like Dave Tonneman's not much of a fan of this guy by the comments we got no. in the uh, room here. <laughs> oh, yeah, hey, you know, we're I'll, uh, <laughs> option bed sheet, overhead light picture. What are you hinting at there, Tonneman? Yeah, I think we know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, the guy is responsible for uh, 30, 32. The guy is responsible for 32 deaths, and he's done... You know, a tremendous amount to uh, you know try to point the finger at other people here. Um, you know, I read a little bit on this here, and you know, uh, there's another popular uh, Italian shipwreck, which uh, you know this could have been similar to, but ended up the captain of that one did uh, you know was very courageous and valiant, and actually took a lot of the blame for it there personally. That was the uh, Andrea Doria, and uh, the captain from that one took it completely personally, and never sailed again. And even though he was actually lauded for his um, you know, great handling of the disaster, and there were a few fatalities in that one. I can't think what the numbers were, but it wasn't, um, you know, it, it was a very small percentage, which is, is, is still tra- are still tragedies, but um, it's amazing how differently the captain of the Andrea Doria, also an Italian liner, handled the situation versus the captain of the Cavs Concordia. Well, I am not having any luck with getting this next one to load. So. Well, if we want to subject our chat room and listeners to my reading of another, I guess I can do that to you guys. So, yeah. Not coming up for you, Darren? No, no, it won't. Okay. Well, this is uh, from philly.com, the Daily Inquirer, well, the Inquirer Daily News. Um, it's a link which I, ch- I posted in the chat room previously, so I think you guys already have this in front of you. Uh, Project Recover, a University of Delaware scientists and colleagues found this debris from a downed World War II aircraft, a B-25 bomber that had been missing for more than 70 years in the water off Papua New Guinea. And we're looking at a color photo of, uh, oh, it's kind of hard to identify to someone who doesn't know planes that well. Um, you know, I'm seeing truss and, you know, some kind of, might be kind of a twisted fuselage here. It's hard to tell exactly. But we're looking at, uh, you know, definitely some some sort of wreckage here in the color photograph. There's a gallery there, which I won't go further into that at this point. Using a sonar-equipped underwater robot, a University of Delaware scientists and colleagues have discovered the wreckage of a B-25 bomber that was shot down in the waters off of what is now Papua New Guinea during World War II, the team said Thursday, Tuesday. Historical records indicate that the plane found in February on the west coast of the South Pacific nation is associated with a crew of six servicemen missing in action, the Project Recovery team said. The nonprofit group has provided the Department of Defense with detailed documentation of the wreck for a possible mission to recover any remains. The team found the tail section of the aircraft first, then located additional debris several hundred yards away, giving clues about its final moments before impact, said Mark Moline, director of Delaware School of Marine Science and Policy. The aircraft was moving at a pretty fast clip when it hit the water, he said. The find marks the 12th time since 2012 that the group has documented the remains of aircraft from the war. 
In addition to Delaware's Marlene, other project members hail from the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at the University of California, San Diego, and a nonprofit organization called BentProp. The locations of several several of the planes were already known, but no one had done the necessary site surveys for possible recovery missions. In February, the team went into an area off Papua New Guinea to investigate one of those known locations. And now we have more pictures of uh, new divers looking at pieces on the bottom here. Delaware's Mark Moline helped find a missing B-25 bomber, also documented the site of another B-25 craft, Wright, whose location was already known. This is Project Recover. Using scuba gear, underwater cameras, and other tools, team members recorded the wreck's dimensions and were Various pieces were scattered, as well as the water depth and other conditions. Moline was gathering information on that B-25 wreck, working from a boat in Papua New Guinea, uh, Madang Harbor. Meanwhile, colleagues on a second boat were looking for another downed B-25, whose exact location was unknown. Using military and historic records, they had narrowed the search to an area measuring several square miles than it was up to the robot, a torpedo-shaped device that swam back and forth, scanning the ocean floor with sonar. About a quarter of the way through the designated section of the harbor, the robot sonar lit up, indicating a man-made object that sat in more than 130 feet of water. More ads popping up here. Moline, an, ocean, uh, Moline, an oceanographer, quickly joined his colleagues at that site. He done scuba gear for a closer look and saw right away part of a plane. Further scrutiny revealed that the tail section of the B-25 that had been missing for more than 70 years fell by Japanese fire. Moline has been involved with many other groups' finds since 2012, and they have always come with the same mixture of excitement and somber reflection. He said, "To know that we found is really to know that we found it is really exhilarating. But then you also know that's part of an accident with six individuals." He said, "And we got some video here. Uh, I'm gonna try to play this and see what comes up here as it plays. Well, it's a six-minute video, so no, I'm, I'm not gonna go through the whole video here. Um, but it's." Quite a few pictures of a slideshow of planes in action, planes on the bottom. Um, it's on YouTube. The header of it is B-25 Bomber Discovered and Documented by Project Recover. If you look for it on YouTube, and you're going to find it no problem there. But I'm not going to uh, go through the whole video at this point here. Scaling down, the project received initial funds from the Office of Naval Research, then stepped up its efforts in 2016 with support from Don Friedkin, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of the Friedkin Group, a consortium of automotive, hospitality, and entertainment companies. After documenting the first B-25 planes in late February, the group continued its efforts in the first week of March, scouting other possible wreck sites in Papua New Guinea. One looked promising, both TDP tackle Moline said. The group is headed back in the fall to take another crack at it. we got some really excellent shots here, photographs of, the, of a plane on the bottom, you can make out fuselage wings, a gun turret. Um, this is one of the B-25s we're looking at. This is one which is already known, but yeah, wow, that's I'd dive that. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> it'd be it'd be great to dive a bomber. Yeah, but then with these, you got to put special respect about because, of course, you know these are genuine war graves here. I mean, they're talking about there being uh, potentially you know, remains and six individuals involved and. Um, so you can't just look at it like, "Hey, cool dive." I mean, this is this. There's a lot of history on this right here. This is this is wow. Um, now that was a U.S. bomber. That was a U.S. bomber. They were saying. Yeah, it took a couple of U.S. bombers, a couple of B-25 bombers here. Okay. World War II B-25, Papua New Guinea. 
And so I guess there was two of them there. They knew where one was, and they didn't know where the other one was. Nice. Yeah, really cool stuff here. I mean, um, I'd kind of like to know what kind of sonar they're using to find this stuff here. Um, they, they talk about, okay, Tahneman must be looking at some different resources here. He's talking about there's four divers during the recovery on this. Uh, so, yeah. Tahneman, are you saying that they, they, they did recover bodies off of this here? Because I, I assume we're not recovering the plane here. We're talking about, you know, looking for human remains at this point. See if he responds to that one. He may. We'll, we'll continue on because we don't know how long that lag is in with the chat room. I, I finally did get the ne- this next article to show up. Divers are proposing building an artificial reef with rocks from an old jetty at Point Hudson. This is articles out of Point Townsend, Washington. Members of the Washington Scuba Alliance want to build an artificial reef to provide marine habitat when the Point Hudson jetties are replaced. Members of the group met the, po- the Port of Port Townsend commissioners last week seeking permission to explore the creation of an artificial reef using the rocks from the Port Hudson jetties. Nam Su, a diver and marine biologist for Marine Surveys and Assessment, said the jetties around Point Hudson are a popular site for divers because of diverse marine life, including giant Pacific octopus that they shelter. It's my go-to dive site, Sue said. It's a nice sense it's so accessible you can pick the Marine Maritime Center and use their bathrooms. It's a really easy place for a local diver. Replacement of the Marine Breakwater, which protects some 51 mooring slips in a tire marina from wind and waves, has been a port priority for several years. The new $5 million jetties proposed for Point Hudson would be steel filled with concrete rather than deteriorating wood pilings and rocks that are being currently used. With these new jetties, would make it much harder for marine life, said Jim Trask of the Washington Scuba Alliance. Marine life would be cut down by half once those jetties are gone. Once they're gone, there's not going to be much there to see, so what we're trying to do is save the absolute wonderful dive site. According to a study done by Reef Environmental Education Foundation, or reef, more than 100 species live in the rocks of Port Hudson jetties. The Washington Scuba Alliance proposes creating an artificial reef on the north side of Port Hudson. Because the site would only be a few hundred feet from where the jetty currently sits, Trash said rocks could simply be picked up with a crane and dropped back in the water to form the reef instead of being loaded onto a barge. We basically brought this to the port commissioners to get permission to explore this option. We're hoping to get this project done without slowing down the port's timeline and costing the port any money since we're hoping to volunteer. Port Commissioner Peter Hank gave the divers permission to explore the option. No date was set for when they report back. This wouldn't be the first artificial reef built with the help of Washington Scuba Alliance. The group completed a similar project in 2007 at Saltwater State Park. Trask said the plan would take would save port money because they wouldn't have to haul the they wouldn't have to pay to haul the rocks away, which contribute to the tourism industry in Port Townsend. We already have people here from California, Idaho, and other places in Washington because the area is so accessible to divers. Port Director San Gibbony is working in the Northern Maritime Center in the city of Port Townsend to spend to plan the replacement for the jetties, he said. Most recently, Port decided to apply for grant money from the State Recreation Conservation Office and the Fish and Wildlife Service for 32% of the cost, or $1,455,000. Awards are expected by spring of 2018. I'm hoping that they can do something like this, because certainly it's it's much better to dive on rocks than it is steel uh, structures, and we can witness that firsthand in, here in the Great Lakes. If you look at what we see... Uh, yeah, the steel the fish don't feel any shelter in the steel unless there's it's an overhang and they can hide underneath it. But when we see large boulders or or rock walls, have you had a chance to dive the uh, Michigan City breakwater? Yes, I have. I've been out there a couple times. Yeah, 
And, and that's one of, that's one that actually surprised me was the amount of fish that are there in that breakwater. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they'll, they'll shadow you and there's, and there's tons of them. Mm-hmm. So, and I, and I imagine the salt water out here that they're going to be in, it'll be even more. Yeah. And, and they're not like the quarry fish that follow you around because they know that, that you're going to feed them there. That these <laughs> fish are just, uh, you know, they're just curious and they're following you around and, you know, you're kind of listening for the music, for the theme music for Jaws because they're, they are, that they are, that they are, but. Some of them are pretty uh, big that we get in the freshwater. Uh, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, there's a wreck out of uh, Muskegon called the uh, the Salvor, which uh, is just chock full of sheep's head, and uh, they will stalk you around that wreck. And when we've seen a sheep's head, you know they're kind of a kind of a big, gnarly looking flat faced carp look, and they're really ugly looking fish, and but they can be forty pounds. And I was seeing them that were you know over 20 pounds following me around the wreck when I was out there. Now, that's not cool, so, but they do. Well, I thought you might find this next one interesting. Do you have that one loaded up, searching for shipwrecks? I just put it in the chat room for these guys here. I'm about to pull it up here myself. But, yeah, that, that does look pretty interesting here. I'm pulling it up right now. How model boats can help hunt, hunting for history here. I'm not I'm having the windows not fully loading here. I have it. Here we go. Searching for shipwrecks. How model boats can help divers hunting for history. Uh, this is sitting rather peculiarly in my window. Okay. Uh, with many shipwrecks buried in our waters, parts of Newfoundland's history are hidden below the surface. Every community has got a story about how a local schooner that was lost and guys that may or may have not been rescued. Neil Burgess, president of the Shipwreck Preservation Society of Newfoundland in Labrador, told CBC's radio St. John's Morning Show. We don't have an exact number of shipwrecks, <clears throat> but we're going around gathering those stories and having a look with, with our divers. Relics of the deep. Wooden schooners were used in Newfoundland for, for fishing and transporting goods and people as recently as the 1950s, Burgess said. Many of the ships sank still lie. Many of the ships sank and still lie at the bottom of our waters. We've been working a lot with the town of Conception Harbor recently, he said. They've got a schooner wreck right off the wharf there, and we're going to be investigating that one this summer. Got a nice picture here of a shipwrecked schooner. Looks like it's uh, on the edge of a reef. Um, shipwrecked schooners can be found throughout the waters around Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, got a website posted: Newfoundland Wrecks, NewfoundlandShipwrecks.com. <clears throat> Excuse me. While some of the vessels have sustained a lot of damage over the years, some have managed to stay intact. In Conception Harbor, wreck has structure. So it's a lot more interesting to look at. Burgess said. The Society's members aim to advance awareness, documentation, and stewardship of shipwrecks throughout Newfoundland and Labrador. In order to help with their investigation, they've enlisted the help of expert modeler, builder Bob Holliday. One of the things that's important for a diver when they're going down to a wreck is to understand the actual structure, the way that the original vessel was built, and if it's laying partly on the floor or it's partly erect or covered with a lot of an area or a lot with a lot of seaweed, Holliday said. They need to have some kind of idea how it's put together in the first place. Educational purpose. Burgess said holidays work can help explain how the ships were built and show divers the different parts of, the, of boats they might see when diving for wrecks. Some of these wrecks have fallen in or they flattened out, and it becomes really confusing if you're not familiar with what you're looking at, exactly what the parts you're seeing are, Burgess said. we got a picture here uh, of a guy working on a model. Uh, Bob Holliday is a model builder of wood sailing ships with a keen interest in the history of Newfoundland schooners. Uh, 
caption uh, Shipwreck Preservation Society of Newfoundland and Labrador. While the goal of the society isn't necessarily isn't to necessarily preserve shipwrecks, we're not out there putting these things in a glass case or anything, Bridges said. Protecting them can help maintain part of the province's history. What's important is some of the boats on the bottom are in locations where some of kind of development and damaging them, said Burgess. There was an example in Trinity where a sewer line was put across the harbor and just by coincidence was going to run right through the middle of a historic shipwreck. So luckily the Newfoundland Marine Archaeologist Society back in the 70s identified that and they just moved the sewer line 100 meters and, and saved the wreck. And that looks to be the end of the article here. Well, that's uh, kind of convenient that they they realized there was a wreck there. Did they do an advanced scout, I wonder, or did it just happen to... Uh, Somebody decided to to check as they were putting the sewer line down there. Well, I'm sure that when they go to put the line down, they got to do some kind of check of the topography just to you know see what the line has to go over, go through, and what the layout of it's going to be. Um, you know, I know they've come across wrecks in our area doing that as well. So I know there's a wreck over in um, you know, Wisconsin. I want to say that yeah, it's the Sheboygan, uh, Wisconsin. We have Sheboygan, Michigan, and then there's uh, Sheboygan, Wisconsin, which is told the past. And there was a wreck that was uh, out in the harbor where they were going to extend the marina, and they found those wreck out there as part of that. They decided actually to excavate the wreck, bring it up, and make an interpreter center unsure about it there. So, you know, when they're planning these projects, they do come across these things. Um, in the past, I'm sure they've built over them or built through them. Nice to see uh, there's enough interest in them to, to work around them and try to preserve them to some extent. Well, this next one, but yeah. Uh, oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, oh, I'm sorry, guys. You know, I thought I posted that link in the chat room. My fault, guys. There's a link there in the chat room a little bit later. Go ahead, Darren. Uh, the Canadian, a, Clo- a Klondike Gold Rush shipwreck in... Uh, this is an Intuit name, I'm guessing. Naku Bay, N-A-H-K-U Bay. Uh, the Bark Canada aground possibly near Plymouth Harbor, near Haines, Alaska, or possibly near, um, I, I want to say Yucatan, but it's not. It's, uh, it's the wrong site. It's U-K-U-T-A-N-I-A point near Skagway, Alaska. The Canadian, the Canada was stranded in a storm 19 February 1898. Other sources say 21st of February, 1898. Uh, it was later towed back from Pyramid Harbor uh, near Skagway and after some legal proceedings sold at auction. Eventually, by 1900, end up in Nakuk Bay, uh, west of Skagway. And uh, at first glance, she's merely a stain on the beach visible only at low tide, uh, but has long been known as Long Bay and Fortune Bay during the Klondike Gold Rush. For some four miles from Skagway, by the dead, the Dye Road, the Canada, however, is far more than that. She is earliest known documented archaeological example of a down easter. Her long trim hull with square stern and billet head and three masts, all square rigged, exemplified the classic look of a merchant vessel in the mid-19th and early 20th centuries. She is also the most easily accessible Klondike Gold Rush-era shipwreck in Alaska. The Canada was built in Bath, Maine, and officially enrolled December 14, 1859. Her tonnage was recorded at 1,144, length at 176 feet, 
her beam at 38.6 feet. The vessel reflected an evolution designed to fit the diverse need of New England's long-distance and coastal trade. She's a windjammer, a clipper ship, but in 1889, newspapers started referring to her as a bark, which meant that her aft mast had been re-rigged to increase her maneuverability in coastal walkers, walkers and walking dead, uh, coastal waters, and decrease the number of crews she required. During the 19th century, newspapers were the Internet of the day and reported in a detail of the commerce of the world. Their shipping news columns reported on the comings and goings of ships and ports and other domestic and foreign ports. If two ships met on the high sea, that information would later be conveyed to people back on home by a spoken-to column in the paper listing which ships had met and where and what was said. Some newspapers might even provide a brief synopsis of the ship's entire voyage. The papers also mentioned unusual events that happened on the waterfront of the sea and advertised ships that had space available for cargo. Because of the volume of news was so large, the papers tended to report in almost Twitter-like code. For example, here's the account of the first voyage of Canada found in Boston Traveler, December 24, 1859. Bass sailed 22D ship Canada New Wyman, New Orleans. Translated, this meant that the new sailing ship Canada, commanded by Captain Wyman sailed from Bath, Maine on December 22, 1859, bound for New Orleans, Louisiana. <laughs> I guess they're not kidding when they said that was Twitter-like. When they've yet determined the ship's port she stopped and it's clear that the newspaper accounts available for the Canada was, was a world traveler. For example, she is known to have traveled to Australia, Burma, Egypt, India, Peru, Mexico, Wales, Ireland, England, Gibraltar, France, Philippines, Caribbean Islands, Brazil, Canada, and the Netherlands, and Italy. In the United States, she sailed from ports in Maine, South Carolina, Louisiana, Alabama, New York, Florida, Pennsylvania, Oregon, Washington, California, and, of course, Alaska. She also quarried diverse cargo that included barley, cigars, coal, coffee, copper, cotton, doors, dye woods, flour, guano, hay, harnesses, hemp, horses, iron, lath, lumber, lead, piles, powder, quicksilver, rags, Railroad iron, railroad construction items, raisin rope, salmon salt, sandalwood, sapin wood, shingle, sugar, tools, wagons, wheat, windows, wool, and wood. New York's commercial advertiser in September 16, 1872 reported on perhaps Canada's most unusual cargo, one iron church and sections weighing 800 tons, 26 Corinthian columns, one Roman altar weighing 3 tons and 16 fortress doors with bolts, bars, etc. The church was constructed constructed entirely of iron, being 135 feet long by 65 feet, comprised, besides the main building, vestuary, dead house, tower, steeple, belfry, and altar, also accomplished by a flue organ by Jardin. The entire expense of the contract amounted to 150000 A church was designed to be erected in the small town of Ancon, Peru, which is used as a watering place for the fashionable society of Lima. This is perhaps the first instance of shipment of an iron church from New York. Unlike any world traveler, the Canada had its share of trouble, especially weather-related. New York Herald on October 5th, 1874, reported that on July 31st, 1874, the Canada encountered a strong northeast gale, which heavy rain squalls 8 p.m. and veered to the north and continued from that quarter, blowing with hurricane violence. And then they go on and on and talk about different things. But this is interesting, yeah. uh, the type of information you can find that I mean, it it would be today like writing the comings and goings of a airliner or a fleet of semis. 
Well, you know, it looks like there was a lot of records on this boat on the ship, though, because they talk about the cost of, re- of repairing, rebuilding. Um, you know, the ship was insured. And I'm sure there were records as far as the, the collisions and who was at fault and court inquiries. So, you know, if, if you know where to look, the information is out there. And this ship was around for a long, long time. I'm really surprised that it was as long as it was because I know that, you know, for Great Lakes ships where, you know, we don't we don't have the woodworms that eat them up and, and as many barnacles that, that tear them up, you know, for a, a wooden in the Great Lakes a long time, it's 30 years, and, you know, freshwater boats outlast saltwater boats. But this one was 39 years old when she finally was wrecked, and I don't know what kind of condition she was in. Apparently, she had a mass removed. Uh, no, often they did that to make them able to you know, easier to load, and and they said in this case to you know run with a smaller crew. But you know this boat had been around for a long time. It's, it's really no surprise that it had such a colorful history. Yeah, yeah, you had plenty of opportunity for things to happen, and I like that photo. Uh, I think it was refloated since this photo was taken because this is where it's leaning on its side and it has three masts in the photo. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That does have three masts in the photo there. So that's uh, an earlier picture there. Um, then they have another one. Yeah, this, this boat was around for a long time. And yeah, I'll tell our listeners that uh, Darren left off where, you know, there's a tremendous amount of history there as far as, you know, this boat getting hit by this boat and other and a steamboat running into it and, um, you know, being run aground and refloated and, uh, you know, but, but they worked these boats hard. You know, these were the, the Mack trucks of their day. And, you know, Mack trucks get their share of fender benders. And, you know, the boats were no different. But good sized boat. I mean, I, I really don't know an awful lot about salties, but, you know, uh, 176 feet in built in 1859. Uh, in this area, that'd be considered a huge boat at that time. I'm not sure about how, you know, I think the saltwater boats were larger than our freshwater boats just because they had, you know, to carry more sail because they had longer distance to run and they had to carry bigger cargoes because, again, they had long di- longer distance to run. But cool-looking old ship. But like all of them, they came to an end. And then we have one last article, at least in the normal section. Do you have that one available? I'm copying the link right now. And I'll get, I'll get this in the chat room here for the guys. Um, okay. See, so we have a few more guests in the chat room. We had guest uh, four and guest five pop in here. Guess, guess we weren't cool enough for guest four. So uh, let's see if I can get this to show up here. Who is uh, guest five? Hey, I'm doing there with Jigger the Almighty here. Today we're out at the river, and today we're going to be scuba diving oh, for some river trips. Great. Yeah. This one here has got all kinds of audio on it we don't want. <laughs> great. Okay. I, I got mine muted, so if you pull this article up, you'll be prepared to be blasted by our interviewer guy here. Oh, do, do you have the one? I, I'm thinking of the one earlier than that one, the one with the, the anchor. Oh, okay. I've got searching for, searching for treasure in the Georgia River is what I've got right here. Yeah. You're talking about the anchor. Okay. Say that one? Maybe that's maybe I got. Uh, oh no, I no, I've got it. This is for Columbus anchor. Yes, I do. Yeah. That, that's my fault. I'm okay. All right. Well, I'm going to cut and paste this for our chat room here. I can. You know, I wonder if I'm kind of getting a little bit glitchy here myself now. Well, actually, I've I've got this one up. If you want me to take it, if you, um, go for it. Yeah. I'll get so it this one is, uh, and I I think what a lot of this is, uh, if you've been following anything and. Scuba in the news is you've seen us. There's a series on Discovery Channel called Cooper's Treasure, 
which uh, airs 10 p.m. on Tuesday. And uh, what they're in the show, they come across what appears to be an anchor. They said analysis of the anchor, which is the first found off Turks and Caicos Island, reveals that it dates between 1492 and 1550. The overall size of the anchor and estimated weight between 1,200 and 1,500 pounds indicates that it is a bower anchor from a 300-ton vessel, the typical size of a Columbus-era ship. Discovery will be revealed in the next episode, of course, of Cooper's Treasure, which airs December 10, or, uh, December 10. I'll read whatever they put on here, which airs at 10 p.m. Eastern Time on Tuesday. That's the anchors from Christopher Columbus, says historical shipwreck discovery specialist Daryl Miklos, who led the Caribbean expedition. The clip from the Tuesday show, I am telling you, stick around. This is just the beginning of an amazing story. Uh, Miklos used a special treasure map created by his late friend, NASA astronaut Gordon Cooper, to find a series of Caribbean shipwreck sites. Cooper died from Parkinson's disease in 2004, created the map following his Mercury 9 Faith 7 flight, the same time he is possibly on a mission to identify Cold War nuclear threats. Armed with Cooper's detailed map and archive research, Miklos and crew of experts identified five colonial period shipwrecks. The team used magnetometers to identify shipwreck areas and dived down deeper to closer inspection using metal detectors. The Turks and Caicos, Caicos, uh, I can't even say it right now, discovery is believed to be linked to Vicentianes Pinzon, a Spanish sailor who, along with his brother uh, Martin Alonso Pinzon, was part of the Columbus expedition. Martin and Vincent were captains, respectively, of the Pina, the Pinta and the Nina on the Columbus first voyage in 1492. Six years later, around the time of Columbus's third voyage, voyage Vincent Pinzon set off from Spain with four carnivals, small sailing ship, including the Pinta, which is known as one of the expedition's minor voyage. In 1499 and 1500, Vincent Pinzon discovered Brazil in the Amazon River in the spring of 1500. The captain met with Columbus in Haiti, discussed a Brazilian discovery before leading his four ships back to Spain. However, in July of that year, Vincent Pinzon's fleet was caught in a hurricane while anchored near Turks and Caicos Islands, and the ship, uh, two of the ships were wrecked. In 1502, Vincent Pinzon returned to the area in attempt to salvage cargo of the two vessels. In addition, the anchor Miklos team found a trove of other, facts, other artifacts from the shipwreck site, including three grappling hooks dating back to Columbus here. The grappling hooks are anchors reused for salvaging treasure from the sunken ships. And uh, I did get a chance to watch a couple episodes. I haven't seen the whole thing, but you have to say one thing about diving in that part of the world is how clear the water is. So if you had any sort of marking, it's certainly understandable how you could come back years later and try and grapple to bring stuff up because you could probably look down and see what hadn't been blown away or drifted away, uh, you'd be able to snag it, especially mm-hmm. if you had cannons or uh, other valuables that you wanted to pick up. In fact, I'm surprised that the, the very well could have been some free divers because in the shots, it looked to be less than 30 feet. Well, it's hard to say because they have such great visibility. I mean, you can have that kind of light there much deeper than 30 feet. So. Yeah. Well, this is, the, just, I would say, ship. from the from the, from the the angle Showing the divers going down, they didn't look like they were at all that deep from the surface. Okay. So okay. it wasn't so much light penetration, it was just perspective, which, you know, is just a, a guess. They're not telling you. I mean, it, like any of these uh, TV treasure discovery shows, you know, they're trying to be real obscure so you can't figure out what it is. Uh, have, have you watched any of these? No, I have not. You know, I, 
I'm not. I don't watch a lot of TV. I'm afraid. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I, I don't normally uh, watch a lot, but that happened to be on, and I thought I'd watch it. And my first instinct was, this is a bunch of garbage, <laughs> because the way they cut some of these shows is so annoying. Where they've got five minutes of content, and they split and edit it to be about thirty, and then you can mm-hmm. just picture off camera somebody yelling to this guy saying you know, be more this, be more that, because he comes across as a complete flake many times. And I'm thinking it has to be more the case of the uh, the producers trying to get him to sound excited than it <laughs> not be. Because there are some people you can tell, because he's, he's got a good crew, and the crew knows what they're doing, and they're really calm. But he, you know, and of course, anytime you do a, a diving show underwater nowadays, they have to have full face masks so you can hear them squeal and scream and all that stuff when they discover things. So it's a little over the top and and how it is. Uh, there's also, I've noticed, a variety of diving skills on people who are diving on the wrecks. It goes from somebody who looks technically proficient and all put together to somebody with everything possible dangling and dragging in the water, you know, bicycling, kicking, and not able to keep their buoyancy and I don't know if it's just how they edit it. Did they get the one shot of somebody being over underweighted or is this how they were the whole time down there? Uh, so they, my pet peeve well, is, is a diver. <laughs> yeah. Well, with what you're describing, I'm sure that you have a, a large variety of uh, diving skill levels, which are assisting on this project. You know, I'm sure some people are, are volunteers. Some of them are going to be, you know, more skilled than others. So. Yeah. Yeah, they did have one. They, they had a couple of archaeologists on the show, and uh, they had one in the episode that I happened to see where he had gotten sick and they, he had to go back in so he could get better. And they brought another one out, and this is one of the guys who was fairly well known, and I apologize for not knowing his name, but he had done work on the, you know, Atosha and, and those sort of wrecks. So, uh, but it's, it's interesting. No, I'd, say it's, I'd say it's worth the watch, but I wouldn't like skip important events or say it's a must view but uh it's interesting well we've 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 got dave in the chat room kind of critiquing it as well he's showing some of the uh, bloopers they got about talking about oxygen accumulation or diving 205 on a single tank with ffm you know uh yeah these guys uh they don't know what he's reinforcing what i'm saying because i think i came in uh, the the part of the episode that i first saw they were talking about almost dying but the way they were playing it off was like you almost didn't believe that he had almost died. You know, like I'm out of air. Well, you're either out of air and you drown or you're not out of air. So was he low on air? I mean, was it a case of it was a rule of thirds and he was below his safety margin. So there he had to come up, which meant he was technically out of air. But the way they, you know, even with the music and the background and the timing, they're making you think that this guy's got like three seconds to live or he's going to spontaneously combust. Well, yeah, that's just kind of how the, the media is about diving. You've got to put all this suspense and danger in it. When, you know, those of us who go down there and stay within our training and do it, it's, you know, at sport depth. And, um, yeah. you know, we know that it's quite it's quite manageable. Even, even when the stinky stuff hits the fan, it's quite manageable. So, yeah. Well, and, that, and that's the planning, and uh, in, in that particular, they they were deep. They're going off the the edge of a reef. I, I again, I don't know if they were as deep as they they said they were, uh, but 
if it gets people interested in diving to go and see it, I just wish it was a little bit better example of some some good diving. You know, maybe if we did it safe and properly, it wouldn't be interesting. But uh, you know, go ahead and check it out. Let well, let us I, go ahead. Yeah, but when you, when you see stuff like this, uh, you makes you wonder if it, how much it's going to scare off the uh, the serious people because you know they're they're going to get in, you know imprinted with you know it's dangerous and um, you know. Or totally get the wrong expectations, you know, thinking you're going to go down to 200 feet on a single tank. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, you know, actually, you, you can. You can. <laughs> Easy. You can. The, the problem isn't getting to 200 feet on a single tank. The problem is getting back. Okay. So, heck, I mean, if you were just going to do, do a one way, you know, heck, you, you can get to the bottom <laughs> as deep as you want to get on a single tank. You know, heck, you can go, you can go dive the Titanic on a single tank if you want to. Coming yeah. back is another story. But, yeah, you know, it, it reminds you know. me of that uh, Looney Tunes cartoons. Now, here's something that only our older listeners will remember, the one where Bugs Bunny and uh, Daffy Duck is uh, having the competition to see who could do the most outrageous stunt. And I think uh, Daffy Duck uh, drank a, a gallon of gasoline, jumped up and down, and then uh, let a match and exploded. And everybody wanted an encore, and he said, well, I don't think I can do one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's floating away as a... Uh going up the pearly gates at that point yeah yeah so so that, that that's called derailing there for those who are listening remotely uh, but that that was good i i you know i saw the items they were finding and i certainly would be very excited finding these anchors and grapples uh and as long as they weren't planted just for the show uh and you see the depths at what they are and you or I swimming over these would instantly know what they are. I guess you just have to swim over them to find them. It's amazing that there's how mm-hmm. much stuff is just not discovered. Mm-hmm. Well, and and it's stuff that you know you wouldn't have to know a lot about ships' construction to identify. You know, when they're talking about you know these kind of anchors and uh, cannons and different items down there. You know, just anyone's going to see this and know what it is. You know, in the previous article they were talking about, uh, you know. With some of the ships being broken up, um, you know, and people having a hard time identifying things and trying try to make, you know, ways for the public to uh, get a little more on board and know what they're looking at. Something I'd like to suggest to uh, some of our listeners because uh, there are some, there is a lot of really good footage on YouTube of different shipwrecks out there. You know, uh, I've looked up a lot of stuff from our listeners even there, and there's really entertaining good quality stuff, but so much of it is shot for divers by divers. And yes. yeah, and, and yes, us as divers, we can look at this and identify, okay, yeah, that's a smash pilot house or that's, you know, the, the chines laying open from the bow or uh, you know, that's a keel and there's ribs and there's inner outer hull. You know, we know this stuff because we do it, we study it, we know about the, how the boats are built. But, you know, keep in mind that the public, doesn't really know that, you know, if, you know, even making captions or uh, there's many different ways you can kind of, you know, explain to your viewer what they're looking at, because you keep in mind that, you know, the majority of the people on YouTube who are going to look at your video are not going to understand, you know, what a chine is. And you'd say, hey, this is the vertical portion of the hull, which extends from the ribs and the keel at the base or different things there. Just try to explain it a little bit to the viewer 
and try to get more people on board because, you know, when you're putting something on YouTube about Iraq, well, you just became an ambassador for the sport. And uh, we, we, need, we need more sports down there. Let's, let's, let's get them on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm off my soapbox. Well, I, I think there's plenty of opportunity. I mean, we're again, we're missing our Jacques Cousteau of our current age. When I say age, I mean the the times. You know, from we we haven't really had a Jacques Cousteau since the you know probably early '80s in any major capacity. And we could use somebody like that. Uh, you know, I think maybe was it this when we had Chatterton and Kohler who were doing the uh, the detectives program. Yeah. That I mean, that yeah, was. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love I love their program. I wish there was something like that again, uh, because I think you could do something where you know dive on the shipwrecks and have somebody with some knowledge of the shipwreck narrate what's being seen and what it was, and you know do some graphic overlays. It, it'd be interesting. Yeah, uh, you know, maybe you're not going to get four million people a night turning tuning in, but you'd certainly have some people interested in it. Yeah, and I think it just has to be done on a level to you know get the the non diver the layman. To, to get their attention because, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's entertaining. There's cool stuff down there, but unless you, you know, know what you're looking at, you just, you know, unless you're familiar with ship construction, you're not going to be able to identify, you know, a, a chine from a keel. So, yeah, yeah, certainly. And, uh, I, I have to admit that there's many times I will look at something and not necessarily see what it is. Sometimes you got to go look back at the, uh, the models or a different shipwreck and then associate what they are and, and I think sometimes even within those, there were some slight variance, variances between a, a building technique from an earlier time and a later time. Oh, yeah. They, they really do uh, identify, you know, both they can pinpoint when the ship was built, even, even the builder, based upon building styles and materials. So. Well, we have a couple more All articles, right. which we won't necessarily cover tonight. The videos of the week, we have a scuba diver uh, finds treasure in the river in, in Columbus, Georgia. So these will be show notes that Jim Billings has been good in keeping posted. So take a look on our website and you follow those. And we've got that one. We also have another one exploring a shipwreck in Cape Town, not necessarily underwater, but it's a steel uh, wreck that's on the surface, but still a good video to go and watch. You talk about that construction. It's at the point now where you can, it's almost like x-ray vision, being able to see decks that have corroded away and you get to see the, the constructions of that vessel. Uh, we also have a couple articles, if I can get them to come up here. They're loading kind of slow again. Uh, potential cool new gear. Rico's announced a waterproof and shockproof camera. This one's from Dive Photo Guide. Um, and then Garmin has also announced a spherical 360-degree camera. And that one I thought was really interesting. It's it's waterproof, unfortunately, only down to 33 feet. But that would be a good one for playing around with. I've been looking for something to use in the rivers I think it would be interesting for uh, people who who don't understand what happens in the rivers when they throw something in or just what's down there to be able to do a 360 dive through there. Uh, it'd be interesting to see how the the play of moving through objects, moving through currents, limited viz, how that would play in a 360. I think that could be uh, an interesting thing to see. Uh, it's, a, it's a little pricey. Uh, the Garmin uh, 360 camera is about $800. Uh, you know, not really outrageous for what it's capable of doing, but still a little bit more than you'd like to spend. And it never did come up, so I'm not going to be able to read it. So, again, those will be in our in our show notes. All right. So well, it looks like our chat rooms kept themselves quite well entertained tonight. Uh, 
It's, a, it's almost more interesting. Yeah, it's almost more interesting in the chat room than uh, what we got going on. Yeah, all about compressors and shop space. So cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and then uh, uh, let's see. Uh, a couple weeks. I think it was a couple weeks ago. Was it a couple weeks ago, Dave, or was it last week? But Dave was talking about a Recapalooza. So he sent me a link, and that was a Recapalooza is Saturday, June 3rd at 11 a.m., National Museum of Great Lakes in Toledo, Ohio. Huh. Uh, so 11 a.m. to 2.30 p.m., that's event. Uh, tickets are available at eventbrite.com. Uh, it's also posted on Facebook, so I'm pretty sure if you do Recapalooza, all one word with some hyphens in there, it will come up. So that's June 3rd, so that's uh, not too far. We're, we're almost into June. This is Memorial Day weekend as we are recording this right now. Yeah, summers are coming. Uh, it's been it's been kind of a, a late season trying to get out on the big water this year because we've had such a rough spring. But, uh, yeah, we're almost to summer already. I'd like to thank WRVO Radio for putting us on the air again for one more season. If you're interested in scuba diving, hunting, fishing, or the great outdoors, you'll want to tune in to WRVO Radio. You can find out more about them and links to their show. Go to www.scubaobsessed.com. Scroll on down to the bottom, and you'll have a link to WRVO Radio. They're available on uh, many different radio platforms. Uh, I think TuneIn Radio is one of the ways you can listen to them, or you click on that the widget, and it will allow you to listen to the programs stream throughout the day. If you have comments about the show, you can send them to us here, the show at scubaobsessed.com. You can follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash scubaobsessed. Also follow us on Twitter, where we will paste in news throughout the week, at scubaobsessed on Twitter. have quite a following on there. Twitter's our most popular platform. Um, so I understand there's been some diving going on. You could almost do a dive in my front yard with the amount of rain we've had. Uh, yeah, that rain has not been much for the visibility, I can tell you. Even out in the big water, it's hurt it with all the storms and high winds we've had. So, um, yeah, there's been some diving going on, but it uh, nothing really stellar, I can tell you that. So, uh, so uh, do you have any stories you want to share? Oh, I don't know. I already kind of got roasted on Facebook about it. I don't want to get roasted <laughs> here, too. I already already paid my dues there, so... Um, I don't know, I, I've been out a fair amount, you know, some of the stuff has just been kind of um, ho-hum just to get some time on the rebreather, you know, ch- you know at, at the, the local pond out here. Um, I don't know, I have made a few forays on the big water, uh, tried to get out, I, I've actually made three attempts to get out to the Ann Arbor, number five, uh, of those three, two, two were, well, one was successful, one was marginally successful, and a third was a outright failure, but, you know, I, I've been on the boat twice this year. Um, boat is still there. <laughs> not, not much has changed. So no, there, nobody uh, stole the Ann Arbor 5. No, no, it's not. It wasn't abducted by aliens or anything there. It's still sitting there, and the, uh, it, it, it did not fall down last winter. A lot of us were talking about there's going to be a big storm coming through, and it's going to end up laying down, but the, it's still pointing up off the bottom like usual. The, uh, you know, I- as much as I would, I like it sitting up. That could be that make it a whole new wreck if it did fall down. Yeah, probably wouldn't be very good for the visibility when it happened, though. <laughs> <laughs> not that, at least not that day. <laughs> no, no, no. It kind of looked like the mud club was out there in the river, covering <laughs> for something. You know, the way it would do the, the visibility. But uh, uh, you know, Mac will find out. the first bottle. <laughs> 
Well, actually, there was an interesting conversation on Facebook today about the gold inside the wreck. But, oh, the gold. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, but but the guy there, I, there is a there is one person I know of who has penetrated the wreck. Uh, Jeff Boss has been inside the Ann Arbor number five, and he did speak up about on my Facebook about the uh, Ann Arbor five. And I'm going to do a little public service announcement. There's no reason to go inside this boat. Uh, it's extremely silty. There's nothing of any interest to see in there. Lots of line traps. There's no reason to go inside the boat. You're probably just going to get trapped in the thing like he did. He did manage to get out, but you know he's made it very clear. It's a high risk. Don't go inside this thing. Well, maybe he just wants to remain as the only guy who's going inside it. I don't know. But well, I, uh, I want to say we know a couple people who have gone inside now. Maybe not to the extent he went in because the, the divers I had talked to had just gone deeper than the bottom on mm-hmm. the boat, but I hadn't heard them. Because you know that you could go all the way up, but uh, yeah. they didn't, I don't think they did that. Well, from what I understand, uh, you know, Jeff Boss got in, got in at the bottom, and went up and worked his way up to. Uh, you know, we, we those of us who dove the rock, we've seen on one of the high ends. There's a, you know, which looks like a large porthole. There is actually a, a hole there. Um, you know, looks like the inside of a spare tire coming out of the the deck up you know, near the high end. And he wasn't able to get his gear out. He had to take off his gear, put his gear out the hole, and then then clamber out afterwards. And not something I want to do at that kind of depth. I'm sure he had quite a substantial deco obligation, and it, um, he's not wow. he's not encouraging anyone to, to follow in his footsteps on that one. No, so. well, and I that's something he was able to do. I can assure you, I would not be able to fit through that tiny hole. No, yeah, I, I you've probably seen the hole up there, and. Uh, I, I wouldn't relish the idea, not at no. all. I mean, it's not not for me. So, no. But, but you got to think of you know this boat. Uh, when it was lost, uh, it was a derelict. You know, it had been used for a breakwater there at Palisades. So anything of any any value had already been taken out of it. You know, it, it was it was just a a rough hull at that point. I'm sure it's far more interesting today than it was then, just because of the angle and the impact and everything. You know, all the all the damage from jamming in the bottom like that was what what, what makes it a really interesting wreck today. So, but a very, yeah, a very I, stunning I, wreck when you come on it, especially if you haven't dove on something like that before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was out there. Was it on Sunday? I I tried to get out there Sunday, didn't work. I went out there the previous. Oh, what was it? Friday evening? Yeah, I went out there Friday. Excuse me, I'll do it chronologically. I went out there Friday evening on scuba tanks, and it was choppy enough that I had a bad, a bad anchor drop, missed the wreck. By the time I got to the wreck, I was like, a, well, by the time I, the wreck came into view, I was like only a minute out of deco. you got to realize that at that depth, you go into deco pretty fast. And, you know, well, there's the wreck. I waved and came back up. Then my boat tender was kind of ticked at me. <laughs> then, uh... Try to do it again on Sunday. Weather for the uh, waves, other other intentions, ended up turning around, coming back. Went out there on Tuesday. Uh, had a decent dive on it. Um, I was on the rebreather at that, that time. Um, had a little. Had, had some quirks with with the rebreather, which were ironed out. But uh, you know, I'm realizing I'm definitely going to have to uh, dial things down a couple notches anyway. So, but not don't. 
visibility that day was about 50 feet, which is you know, usually you know, up to 75, even 100 foot visibility this time of year in the Ann Arbor if you get out there. But it's been really, really rough. You know, we've had so many storms and gales come through here. Uh, you know, you, you, when you go by the river mouths going into Lake Michigan, it's just a sea of mud going out, and that's got to extend down the coastline quite a bit, and you know, affecting visibility out for miles because there's just so much sediment coming down the rivers these days. Oh. So. I can't imagine anyone wanting to, uh, you know, to dive the river. These, you know, right now, what's going on? It would just be oh, a, no. you know, complete chocolate milk dive. So, yeah. So. yeah. I mean, you got to hopefully find a little inland lake somewhere that's uh, had a bit pretty peaceful. If you want to get any sort of good diving in, but we're optimistic. Hopefully, here, if not this week and the following week, and we'll get things that will calm down a little bit and be able to get some boats on the big lake. Well, yeah, I've, I've seen some posts about it. I know Rob's talking about putting together a dive uh, for Memorial Day. Not sure if he's got a location on that yet. Um, I know I'm going out. I'm going to be going out Sunday. Um, a couple friends and I are going to go out to the Ann Arbor again and get it right on Sunday. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we got some other possibilities out there floating around, too. You know, it's always, you know, it's always a thing where people say, hey, if the weather does good this day, let's do it. But then, you know, the weather just hasn't been very good panning no. out this year. So. No. And we seem to be in that cycle where... It's like nice on Monday and Tuesday, but then the whole rest of the week is crap. Mm-hmm. Well, we had such a mild winter. I'm I'm suspecting that because uh, you know it got it never really got that well iced over, so the lakes did warm up relatively quickly. You know, we already got you know water temps, uh, you know surface temps anyway in the uh, mid and upper fifties anyway on the, on the big water. Yeah. So, but then you have still a lot of you know cold air high up. Which does, you know, when they mix, mix quite a bit of turbulence on the on the, on the big water. You just had so many blustery days out there, and you just can't get out. You know, yeah. um, you know, when it's if it's three foot, it's diveable. Three foot waves is diveable, but it's not a lot of fun. And you get more than that, and it's just dangerous and dumb to go out. Couldn't stop me. Well, yeah, it does, but. <laughs> Well, it's one of those things. You, you want to leave a little bit of buffer, like your rule of thirds. You got the same thing with waves. You know, if it's two in building, it doesn't make sense to go out. But if it's three in falling, then, hey, you may make a chance. Well, yeah, and you kind of just got to look at, at the wind direction for that. Because, you know, when we're on the, uh, you know, the east side of the lake, if the wind's out of the west, which it usually is, um, you know, if the wind is picking up, the waves are picking up for sure. You know, I I don't know, I've been using the buoys quite a bit lately and been a little bit dis, disappointed with uh, the accuracy of them. But I've always, but I used to fish a lot before buoys were popular. I would look at, well, before, you know, having wave height projections anyway, look at the uh, the wind speeds. And NOAA is pretty good about telling you what wind speeds are. And they don't usually forecast them out more than, you know, I think it's about 36 hours, 48 hours top that they forecast wind speeds. <clears throat> but if you take, you know, the wind speed and divide it by five and then add on up to 50%, depending upon if the wind is out of the, the east or west and then how long it's out of the east or west, uh, you can get some decent, you know, some decent uh, projections there. So if, if, the wind forca- if the wind is 5 to 15 out of the west, that, that means that your, your wave height is, starts off as being 1 to 3. But then you figure it's out of the west. It's been building. So it could be as high as four and a half. All right. So be ready for that. Now, if it's out of the east that and those that same 
amount of time you could count on it being, you know, one and a half feet. Correct. Yes, you can, especially if you're within the uh, lee of the land. You know, if you're within that, that five-mile zone, then uh, it could be just about flat. Yeah. But then totally. you always got to realize that when you when you get to that that between three and five miles section off off offshore, the wind does tend to switch, and you know that's where that's where you're getting out of the lay of the land. And now you've got issues with the winds coming down the coming coming down the lake. So it always gets goofy at that that three to five mile area, and that's where all the wrecks tend to be. Hmm. I wonder is there a reason why the wrecks tend to be in that three to five mile stretch? Hmm. Yeah, so. you got to remember every wreck you dive on that that was created by somebody's bad day. <laughs> yeah, lot you know, quite a few people's bad day sometimes. So, so so we're hoping this weekend, if not this weekend, the following weekend. But uh, it's time now to make plans because we're we're getting that it's getting tough. I mean, the, you can't start counting up how many weekends you have between Memorial Day and Labor Day, and there's not a whole heck of a lot of them. Yeah, and if you don't put them on the calendar, they're, they're just not going to happen. you you got to realize that with the weather, you're going to have quite a few blowouts. So, you know, and, and, and go for a plan B. You know, uh, if you're going to go, you know, out and dive the big water, you know, and knowing that you got a good shot at whether or not cooperating, then uh, make a plan B for a shore dive someplace. It's going to be nice and easy with your friends, or there are a lot of different lakes that have cool things to see, and you can do with a boat dive or a shore dive. Yeah. So. Well, hopefully I'll be able to get some time in here pretty soon. My my daughter's graduation's coming up here pretty soon, so I've got that'll tie me up for the next three weekends. But I did pick up a new scuba dive vehicle, so I'll be able to at least new to me. So at least I'll have a w- way of getting scuba diving gear to where we go scuba diving, which mm-hmm. is starting to become a challenge. The uh, the rear differential, the uh, what they call it, transfer case. And then the CV joints, all the mountaineer decided to take a poop ball at the same time. So, yeah. which, I only which, do that sometimes. Is yeah. It, you know, did, did you get it fixed, or is it just going to be? Oh no, it's no. It's going to be. It's going to be Craig listed. So do not buy a white Mercury, <laughs> two thousand four. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest about it, but I'm not going to exi- uh, go into extreme detail. I'm going to say it needs some work in the drivetrain. Hey, it's it's a vehicle you want to recommend for your ex-wife or your ex-girlfriend, yes. you know. Hey, yeah. I hey, hey honey, I got I got the I got the car for you right over oh, here. It, yeah. yeah, it's it's four-wheel drive, you know, it's got an entertainment system. It's white, you know, the, the all white cars have to be nice. It kind of kind of smells like dive gear, but you get used to it after a while. It's no big deal, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah, it was it's like we had a new joiner. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, it's always my wife's complaint with uh, doing anything. But this this next vehicle, even though I think we're going to end up splitting it uh, for use, uh, it's certainly going to see dive gear, that's for sure. Well, that's kind of part of the deal. Yep. So looks like we had a new joiner in the chat room, a poultry sub, who I believe is Tracy. Yeah. Came in here. And I never did yeah. get the name of Guest 5. I've seen you guys have been chatting back and forth quite a bit, but I don't have quite figured out who Guest 5 is yet. Yep. So. Well, let's see. Do you have anything you want to plug before we head on? Uh, just my usual. Um, support your local libraries and support your local dive shops. We all like to get that bargain online. Both bargains online are going to fill your scuba tanks or service your regulators. Yeah. Oh, uh, also, uh, you know, a lot of your dive shops are looking for your business this time of year. So uh, make sure you go in there, get your, your equipment serv- serviced, 
Uh, if you're thinking about going diving this weekend, take a look at the viz in your tanks. You may need to get that checked out. Also, uh, allow for time for hydros. Hydros, you're going to have to have them sent out, at least for most dive shops, and it could be an extended amount of time before they come back in. Uh, did you get a chance to, uh, a shameless plug for Wolf's Marine, but did you look at their uh, ad that was sent out this week? I got the email there. Uh, yeah. If you scroll about two-thirds of the way down, they had a nice photo. And I believe that is in the St. Joe River there uh, downstream from the Swing Railroad Bridge, which is still in operation after over 100 years in service. Um, and they have a, they, they show a submarine tied up to the uh, breakwater or the uh, pier. A submarine in St. Joe? Yes. And there's a little bit of story behind it uh, that after World War One, there's a couple of submarines in uh, that were taken as the spoils of war, and uh, they toured the Great Lakes. So they, one of them evidently did a little stop in St. Joe, and it's their uh, photo of it in the article. And then I'm assuming Jim wrote it, but it could have been somebody else uh, did a little bit of background. So I thought that was nice. Cool. Cool, yeah. I, I'll take a look at that one there. So, cool. Okay. Thanks again, everybody in the chat room. And are you ready for that time of the show? Would it make a difference if I said no? Not really. Uh, this no. one again came from Rod, and it sounds familiar, so it's possible that uh, elements of this may have been used before, but we'll leave it up to you to determine. I think uh, sometimes even the second time, but still as bad as the first. A pirate walked in the bar, and the bartender said, Hey, I haven't seen you in a while. What happened? You look terrible. What do you mean, said the pirate? I feel fine. The bartender then says, Well, what about the wooden leg? You didn't have that before. Well, said the pirate, we were in a battle and I got hit with a cannonball, but I'm fine now. Well, okay, but what about the hook? What happened to your hand? Well, we were in another battle and I boarded the ship and I got in a sword fight and my hand was cut off and I got it fitted with a hook, but really I'm fine. Then the bartender asked, well, what about the eye patched? Oh, said the pirate. One day we were at sea and a flock of birds flew over. I looked up at one of them and they shit in my eye. The bartender said, says, you're kidding. You lost an eye just from bird shit? Well, it was the first day with my hook. Oh, 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 oh. Yuck. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. See? All right. These are getting, getting a little better. All right. So... <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, go out there and get wet. Stay safe and have a good time doing it. Recording has been completed. Well, thanks everyone in the chat room. Nice to have a close to a full house tonight. So good to have you here. I was watching the uh, conversation, the chat room. Uh, sometimes they had more interesting stuff going on than we did. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I always think that. Like, I need somebody else to come do your show for me so I can play in the chat room. Yeah, I was a little bit distracted from time to time. I was like a little bit late pulling up uh, some of the articles. Like, oh yeah, I was kind of in that conversation. Oops. Yeah. So.